tonight's talk is the divine biting in compassion or karuna brahma vihara continuing in the in the series of these um, evocative and innate spiritual emotions Michelle and I uh, like to gather these retreats in beautiful surroundings, as you might notice here in the Southern Rockies. And, and if you come to our retreat land in North Kohala on the Big Island, it's the equivalent, you know, along a mile of rugged rural coastline. And um, this uh, lake area in southern Thailand where I've been teaching for six years or seven years in a 160 million year, year old remnant tropical rainforest. It's real jungle and there's still, you know, authenticity to it. There's the um, giant hornbill, great hornbill, hasn't changed in 50 million years. And one of our close, closest cousins, the gibbon, the smallest in the ape family, but they're hauntingly beautiful songs uh, every day. Um, they've been around for millions of years longer than our human evolution. They're the stunning presence, vivid presence of these environments are so that we can be awake in our senses and that we can find rest true rest, true relaxation. You know, that's why we come here. But we can see it's a practice, isn't it? No matter how beautiful it is. And we want to go out and open to the joys of the visual experience and sounds and aromas and flavors and sensations in the body all around. And the Buddha spoke of them as our birthright and as a you know legitimate um, present pleasure, sense pleasure. And he also spoke, as Michelle did last night, of, of impermanence, because we can see no matter how long we're connecting and sustaining in a natural environment like this, you know, what happens when mental moods come up? Old karmic knots and blocks and tangles, they still come up, don't they? You know, even in this beautiful environment, a six-minute meditation might look like a map of Einstein's hair, you know, or all over the place. And trying to remember what we're supposed to do or what happened so long ago that we can't feel compassion or care here in the present. Or where is this going to take us? What's the benefit? What's the reason we come to do this practice? It's a poem by William Stanford, and he's writing it uh, for a friend, James Dickey, another poet. Sometimes from sorrow, for no reason, you sing. For no reason, you accept the way of being lost, cutting loose from all else, and electing a world where you go where you want to. 
arbitrary, a sound comes, a reminder that a steady center is holding all else. If you listen, that sound will tell you where it is, and you can slide your way past trouble. Certain twisted monsters always block the path. But that is when you get going best, glad to be lost, learning how real it is here on earth again and again. That poem holds so much. You know, it, it speaks about how, as Michelle was saying last night, Metta, in fact, all the Brahma-viharas, the Buddha regarded as the fabric that holds the universe together, without which the universe collapses. And in the Buddhist cosmology, does. When the Brahma-vihara, sila, the harmony of compassion and loving-kindness and joy, equanimity, the wisdom of equanimity, fall away. And the fabric of life collapses on itself. And then it starts again somewhere else or so the cosmology and the mythology goes. When we're in the jungle in Thailand, you know, can't help but wonder where we came from and what we're doing here. We're so new on this earth. We're just a few minutes old. And when I suggested the other night that gratitude, um, the practice of the Brahma-viharas can, um, are enhanced and are component of feeling gratitude to our lineages, our teaching lineages, or our ancestral lineages. When we feel back in time to what we know and then beyond what we know, those who came before us, we're a result of a long line you know, of, our, of our human ancestry. We're holding all the sensations and all the joy and all the sorrow all the pleasure and all the pain of this line of lineage going back to a common mother and father of us all. And in the scale of things, it's rather young on earth. And our thinking techno minds are just a few, mo- just a few moments compared to our feeling indigenous minds of our earlier ancestry. Um, we're trying to call that up in these environments. We bring, we bring us, we bring you here, and love to teach in these environments because Michelle and I feel like they they call up that indigenous heart, that unifying feeling awareness that's been overridden by the more div- divisive thinking mind, thinking awareness. Where we're analyzing and chopping up, fabricating all the time. So Karuna also, you know, has a masquerade, a near enemy, and a, a seeming opponent to be transformed, opposite all the opposites of of care and compassion. The trembling of the heart is a description in, in the text, the Pali texts, of what it feels like. It's a pleasant feeling. It's not a, a mournful feeling. And it, it's true that often the first response to, to pain or anguish that we sense and feel in ourselves or in others or in the world may be grief and sorrow. 
And it's true, too, that we need to make a shelter for that grief or sorrow and feel the feelings, connect and sustain an awareness of that grief, the sorrow or fear of suffering, of pain, of anguish. And and learn not to hold on to the story, to the fabrication, what we call papancha in Nepali, mental proliferation. So the not holding on allows that feeling awareness to embrace the grief, the sorrow, the, the pain. Uh, often we need to do that before there can be that pure and pleasant quality of compassion uh, that comprises also the components of grace and gratitude. I was a part of the um, 2004 tsunami catastrophe in Southeast Asia. Uh, And a lot of my friends and extended family uh, I live with in, in Thailand for a greater part of the year. I just happened to be in this island a year before the tsunami called Golden Buddha and connected with it and met a few of the people who had homes there. And it's like an eco-resort. And we're not there. You know, guests come who want the nature experience. There's no roads. There's no 7-Elevens. There's no nightclubs. So I made friends with the manager of the place and taught a retreat there to my friend Sarah mid-year of 2004 and, and met more people and was befriended by, uh, by two uh, by three of the people who who died in the tsunami, and then I was um, I was there the day of the tsunami. I wasn't on the island. I felt the earthquake, and then with the owner of the resort, went there the next morning, and then one of my friends uh, dead on the beach, and then spent the next week looking for our friends. I didn't know any of the people I was with. They were all friends and family. I knew three of the people who died. And everyone else, you know, I was just a stranger there helping. Um, And for a lot of people, it was kind of a refuge, you know, this perfect stranger. And my instinct was just just to help and um, be part of the search parties and whatnot and, and care. We stayed together for three weeks on the island and on the mainland and through a Buddhist um, cremation for four of the people who who died and then spent another week together uh, in Bangkok and then some of us went to a yoga retreat in India and others went their their ways but our lives were changed forever and bonded forever. And I remember how important it was uh, to hold that space, that shelter to feel and go through grief and sorrow and loss, separation and and fear and pain of suffering. And that the best that I could do was just have this presence there. And, you know, work hard every day, um, cutting through the forest. Some of the bodies were one or two kilometers from the beach, you know, washed, in, washed ashore. Once 
that how that construction, that shelter was made, and we could feel together as a community, uh, like a compassionate community, <clears throat> and go through that grief and be there, you know, watch the burning bodies of friends and family and take the ashes and put them where we wanted to and build the stupa. And last year we put photos around where the stupa is at this um, Buddhist temple uh, on the mainland down the coast from Golden Buddha Island. Then healing could happen. And everyone in this community, you know, has has healed indeed, has gone on. We never forget. And on the 26th of December every year, um, between 12 and 20 of us meet uh, under the shelter on Hornbill Hill where a lot of lives were saved. And we meditate and we remember. And every year we talk a little more, more of the stories come out. And there's more healing because there's more feeling compassionate, present-time feeling. Um, you know, a few people just left and they weren't part of that healing community, that shelter of grief. And for many, it's still really difficult all these years later. Some came back, some went home to Europe or whatever, and they felt that separation. And they came back and joined us. And some have joined us over the years and become a part of that healing, feeling the pain, feeling the grief, so that grace and gratitude and this pure sensation, emotion that of compassion can arise, this feeling tone of care that feels good in the body as a sensation and good in the mind and affects all of our emotions and thoughts and thinking. Compassion, like the other Brahma-viharas, is a powerfully good mental quality, a very transformative element. One of the stories that really moved me that I, I, I heard of some years ago, I found a children's book in Bangkok written by authors of children's books who interviewed, interviewed children in Thailand and, and Indonesia and Sri Lanka and Africa and India. Uh, and the Andaman Nicobar Islands, everywhere where there is this catastrophe affecting lives of people. And one of the stories that has touched me a lot was this polarization in the Nicobar Andaman Islands between the, the Nicobarian community, which was more privileged and educated, socially economically in a better position than some of the tribal people, the indigenous people, and one of these indigenous tribes or the Shampin people. And the Shampin people held a knowledge from elders, you know, passed down through generations. And though there hadn't been a tsunami in Southeast Asia for five hundred years, they have a word for it. And they know that it's going how it's going to happen. The earth shakes, and then there's this mountainous wave that soon comes. The beach, disip- the water disappears, and the beach arises. So there was this Nicobarian boy, educated, and uh, around 12 years old on the beach, when it when the water disappeared, and he started to pick up, you know, fish and 
shellfish and put it in a basket to take home to this community. And then at the edge of the forest on the beach, not, you know, 100 feet from him, appeared this Shampin boy about the same age, but much smaller, tribal forest, indigenous boy, and didn't speak very good Nicobarian language, but he tried his best, and he, he yelled and grunted, you know, and tried to make the motions of when the earth shakes, as it did, and the water disappears, as it did, a mountainous, wa- mountainous wave of water comes. And there is prejudice, you know. There is the seed of ill will and hatred in, in the heart of the Nicobarian boy towards this tribe. It was in the culture. And they looked down on the tribal forest dwellers. So he didn't trust them. And the Chapman boy kept trying to convince him, you know, that there was danger and he must come. And the more he did that, the angrier, the more threatening the Nicobarian boy acted. So he went about his business of filling his basket with seafood. And then suddenly he felt a sensation at his side. And by the time he looked around, the Chapman boy was already a hundred feet away from him, again at the edge of the forest, and holding the Nicobarian boy's bag of money shaking it, taunting, teasing, trying to harness his anger, actually, to chase him, which he did. The Nicomarian boy started to run after the Shampan boy, who was faster than wind and, you know, just moved through the forest like a shadow. He had to keep reappearing to shake and taunt and tease the boy, the Nicobarian boy, again. In that way, he got to, he got to the highest point on the island uh, just as the crashing sounds of the wave the first wave came and then climbing a tree by the very large second wave because there was nowhere higher to go and they had to climb 30 feet high on this very sharp prickled tree that didn't hurt the Shaman boy at all but cut up the Nicobarian boy they kind of sat at opposite limbs on the tree sort of Nicobarian boy glaring at him, but also afraid and you know confused what was going on because then the water was rising. The water was twelve meters, like you know thirty six feet high, just under their feet, uh, and then it would go away and then surge up again. And so it was rather confusing, but they still didn't talk. They had different language and different customs and everything. Nicob- the shopman boy just was quite calm and. You know, aware of the danger and aware that to stay there was the best and safest thing. A couple of hours went by, and just because they were young and the terror of the catastrophe, they were also very hungry 12-year-olds. So suddenly, out of nowhere, you know, seemingly, the Shampin boy pulled out an arrow and bow that he had handmade in the forest, and shot an arrow that looked like it was going right for the Nicobarian boy, and just went by his ear and pinned a pheasant that had landed you know, to, and into a tree limb. And then he motioned to take the pheasant and, and defeather it. And in the meantime, the shopping boy took out a handmade knife and with dried leaves and, and um, shavings from the tree and a little... Uh, bowl between the limb and the trunk of the tree, 
put this fire material and pull out his own bag and pull out these two stones. And the, and the Nicobarian boy was just, you know, by this time he was just in wonder of the capacity and movement and skill of this indigenous tribal boy. He took the stones and hit them against each other, and in moments there was a fire. And the Nicobarian boy's eyes, you know, they just widened with wonder and amazement. But he still didn't trust this, you know, foreign, um, objectified entity, this tribal boy. They cooked the pheasant with sticks and ate and nurtured themselves. And before long, a boat came. Nicobarian authorities and picked them both up, going to a, a refuge center. But near the beach where they first met, the, the shopping boy jumped off. He kind of knew what to do to get back to his community and wanted to go to his family and his community. And they still hadn't been talking. They were sitting at you know, opposite ends of the boat. But on the beach, the Champan boy yelled to the Nicobarian boy, and he patted his side again in the same way. And the Nicobarian boy, you know, felt his pocket, and there was his bag. And still, with distrust, you know, he pulled it out to see if his, his money was there, and it, all of it was, and so were those two firestones, which, you know, he was so amazed with. Compassion is an instinct. And it lives in our nature, in our indigenous heart. And even though the Champan boy was an enemy to the Nicobarian boy, he did what he did by instinct, by nature. Because compassion is what you do when there's suffering, when there's anguish, when there's danger. In that moment when the Nicobarian boy is gifted with these stones. His own stone over his heart rolled away, and he felt love for the boy for the first time. And all those years of prejudice, all that story, all that fabrication, all that papancha mind fell away. So we, we return to these awesome and rare nature environments like here in North Kohala and Hawaii and Khao Sok Forest in Thailand because there's something about it that reawakens uh, this ancestral feeling awareness and compassion and begins to shift how we perceive things and how we work with emotion and how we respond to, um, to life training our hearts to respond from its core nature of the Brahma-viharas, as we were talking about this morning. And though we focus on each one of these, so wisdom gets to know them. They each have a different flavor or a different scent. Metta, the scent of connection and warmth of heart. And karuna, the response of the heart to whether it's pain or anguish or fear or danger. And mudita, the empathetic joy response wherever there's happiness and beauty and loveliness in the world. And uh, upeka, brahma-vihara, that wide mind of serenity, of wise and and caring but 
equanimous presence in the face of life's vicissitudes, joys and sorrows, pleasures and pains. I remember years ago, maybe 25 years ago, well, no, it was actually 1995, because Michelle and I, um, the first time in our lives, you know, borrowed money and, and bought a new car, black, cheap Cherokee. And then we were off teaching, and we flew into Honolulu, and my parents loved picking us up. In those days, everyone was still met on the curb, you know. There was no TSA restrictions and so forth. So there they, they were with, with leis, as is tradition in Hawaii. When you visit, you're given a lei, flower lei. Um, and uh, so my mom gave me a lei, my dad gave Michelle a lei, and he was holding the a cart with our luggage. We went to give Michelle the lay. He let go of the cart. And it was a sloping curb. <laughs> and the cart with all our luggage, with my bag and Michelle's bags, <laughs> went <laughs> rolling into the, to the side of the car and immediately made this huge dent. <laughs> and as I was looking in shock and grief and horror... <laughs> My dad's initial response and only response is, oh, whenever you see that, you'll think of me. <laughs> we didn't get rid of the car until just a few years ago when it was pretty broken down, and I never removed the dent. And he was right. We always thought of him. You know, and that's how we can, that's how we can respond to to life as it is. There's choice, there's an intention, there's a habit, the mental story, fabrications, uh, reactivity. Uh, so when there's something that kind of horrifies us, disturbs us, uh, there's the reactive mind. But there can be the compassionate mind, there can be that care and response. And like my dad, so, oh, you know, you'll never forget me, will you? <laughs> And the equanimity, you know, just allows for that to happen in the moment. It's a natural response, and it's a true response when the story falls away, when there's that release, when there's that not holding on. If you recall, I'm presenting these Brahma Viharas as transmissions, and they happen like this, you know, there's the connecting and sustaining awareness, metta or compassion, karuna awareness, that that touches whatever present time experience is arising in our senses or in our body, in our emotions, in our mental field. And, and then there's the trained awareness of not holding on to any story, any fabrication, embellishment that usually happens after the immediacy of a sense experience, a sight, a sound, a sensation, the thought. Instead, we learn to just drop it, you know, release it. It's tiring. Remember, we came here to learn the ultimate and deepest form of relaxation, rest. There's a word for it in the Pali, viveka. Rest, relaxation, and it keeps deepening, you know, until the ultimate rest of complete liberation, enlightenment. But all along the way, there's this little viveka moments. And that's like when Michelle speaks of just dropping in, just letting go, or not holding on. 
that's a moment if we wake up. You feel rested. You know, you feel a moment. Everything lets go. The body, the emotions, the thoughts. Everything just sort of drops into this sense of this unified field of mind and body. It's like, it's all okay. Even if there's discomfort. Even if there's a dent in your car, you know. Or you have an enemy glaring you down in an emergency. Someone who hates you. Still, you're just there. And then by not holding on, we can feel what's real. We can feel the feelings, which is so rare. It's so much filtered, mostly. It's really hard to sustain a feeling awareness of an emotion to feel fear. You know, in this environment, a lot of a lot of the times, especially after three, four days, our senses start to feel quite filled and overflowing. It becomes really intense. It might be intense joy. It might be just intense, like really intense energy. It might not know what to do with it. It might proliferate the mind out into thoughts and fantasy. Or we might be afraid. We might fear this intense energy, you know, and what to do. What to do is feel the fear, if that's what's there in that moment. And then feel the energy or feel the pressure of intensity. Just feel the feelings. They're just what they are. They don't refer back to I or me or mine. It's just fear, it's just pressure, it's just intensity, it's just energy. I may have mentioned earlier on this um, Dagara tribe in West Africa and a very old friend of mine, Maladoma Somme, West African, who was stolen from his village and raised in a Western Catholic tradition and then went back to his elders to learn who he was and where he came from. And I think I said you know, he learned to dim the lights, the conceptual lights in order to see. And literally it was when he was trying to turn the lanterns up in the evening, his elders said, why are you doing that? Maladoma says, so we can see. And they said, well, you know, with the lights you only see what you want to see. You know, it's like the fabrication. You only see the story. If you dim the lights and grow accustomed to the dim, you know, go into the darkness of the body, then you start seeing what's real, what's true. Well, the other thing that Amaladoma said was about emotions. And it points to, you know, Jung's teaching about the transcendent nature of emotions. I've mentioned, I think this morning, how all emotions eventuate in these four spiritual emotions. And it might sound, you know, amazing, or it might sound like metaphoric, but it's actually true. You know, all emotions evolve or transcend into one of these very powerful forms of connection, metta or care, compassion, joy, equanimity. They have various tastes and flavors and forms. And the example he gave was like, in a community like theirs where there's hardly any walls and they live really close together, um, often someone acts out a very strong emotion for the whole village. And they'll come to the center of the village, like the village well, and they'll act out the emotion, vocally or through body movement and contortions. And 
this express the emotion in such a vivid and poignant way that the whole village turns turns out to witness it. And it becomes their a village emotion. And they all experience it in that way. It's no one's emotion. It's like every time we have an emotion, just imagine that it's the person sitting in front of you or behind you, you know. It may as well be. Because it really is just an emotion. And the only identity that it might have is if we fabricate a story around it and think of it as my emotion, as my fear. And it, and then, however, it's further embellished. And here, the whole village, this, they had this transcendent experience that uplifted the consciousness, the awareness, the knowing, and the com- compassionate connection of the whole village to witness this person acting something out. It might be totally non-verbally. It's extremely important for the whole village for that to happen. Working with the the far enemies, you know, it's just as important um, as recognizing grief and sorrow, giving them their spa- their space, their shelter and remembering how to go through the, the, the transmissions and the transcendent of emotions, you know, connecting, sustaining, not holding on to the story, feeling the feeling, and then when the compassion arises, abiding in it. And then when we feel filled, like the pond, you know, from the water, rainwater, filling up the back of the valley, cataracting down pond after pond, when our own pond feels full, then it flows over naturally. That's the transmission. It's like an inner transmission and release, not holding on to the story, feeling the feelings. Uh, and then the compassion just appears, not by our desire, not by our wish. There it is, as a native response to anguish, to danger, to pain, to suffering, to life as it is. And then just the abiding in it. And we may have to do that again and again, as um, William Stafford says, you know, learning how real it is here on earth again and again. You just feel it. And that way, there's every time we abide, there's this moment of we wake up, of rest, of genuine relaxation. We feel connected. And for that moment, you know, everything's okay. The whole world is okay, and, and there's no inside, and there's no outside. And there's just this unification, this, this oneness with things, with things as they are. The German poet Goethe wrote, How difficult it is not to put the sign in place of the thing. How difficult to keep the being always livingly before one and not slay it with the word. The German philosopher and poet Goethe, again, how difficult it is not to put the sign in place of the thing. How difficult to keep the being always livingly before one and not slay it with the word. It's like you know, even here in nature, when we open our senses and go out, how difficult it is just to feel and be and, and abide 
with metta or compassion in pure, vivid, visceral seeing or sound vibration or bodily, bodily sensation, aroma, flavor, mental state, whatever emotion is there to be felt, you know, to be known. How difficult not to fabricate, put a sign, to slay it with a word. But that's why we're here. So again and again we can feel how real it is, how true it is. And Henry David Thoreau, in talking about what we're trying to transmit about this living, sensing, uh, feeling presence in the midst of nature, and not make it a mental construct, he writes... It is only when we forget all our learning that we begin to know. I do not get nearer by a hair's breadth to any natural object so long as I presume that I have an introduction to it from some learned man. To conceive of it with a total apprehension, I must for the one thousandth time approach it as something totally strange. You must be aware that nothing is, is what you have taken it to be. You have to be in a different state than the common. Your greatest success will be simply to perceive things as they are. So the reason that we create as a community this sacred space, you know, that's held together by this fabric of trust so that the loving kindness and trembling heart of karuna, joy of mudita, peace of equanimity can happen. The reason that we want to protect this canopy, this fabric of trust, is because... It, it takes such vulnerability, you know. It takes such uh, fragility to open to our depth. And a lot of you wonder, well, why are these things coming up? You know, I've worked with it a lot in my life, or in therapy, or I came here, you know, for the for the peace or to understand the practice and whatnot. But this is precisely what it, what we need to be experiencing, whatever it is, however difficult, however rough-edged. You know, however threatening or intimidating, or however alluring, you know, it's to find that presence. We're not pulled away out of our senses into thoughts about what we see and hear and sense. And that's why we keep encouraging uh, the protective quality of noble silence not to read, not to write, not to talk to each other. Even communicating with our eyes at a retreat can be a distraction. This is a powerful inner training. We rarely turn our intention inward and sustain it for any length of time. We don't have the time. And we don't have the culture that you know, promotes it, that encourages us to do it. So it's really a rare space. This is very unusual, non-ordinary time and space. We're in a mythological realm here. Even time and space are conceptual, are words are fabrications that fall away. And that's why sitting today, you know, is so different than four days ago when six minutes seemed like an hour. 
and sometimes an hour now seems like six minutes. You know, everything has shifted because it's not about the clock time. It's just about the unfolding of experience. And it happens in non-ordinary space and time. Thus the, the energy Michelle and I put into these sacred spaces, into these unusual, rare environments where our teachers become the language of the senses. Our teachers become the colors, the canvas of colors and the vibrations of sound, nature's sounds, and the aromas that change all the time according to the time of day and clouds and sun and so forth, and tastes, bodily sensations that, that change every time we have a different emotion. And we just start to sense that connection and get that we don't have to do anything. There's nothing to do. But the, these Brahma-viharas are their own intelligence. They know what to do. The thinking mind is going to put a sign in front of it. It's going to slay it with a word. So we just recognize that it's really important to do that, to understand how much we respond to immediate, real experience, what's true, what's felt, what has viscosity and energy and aliveness, how quickly we, we fabricate. We have to appreciate that. And we have to appreciate that a lot of that has been our survival strategies. We, sh- we can bow in gratitude to many of those fabricating stories uh, and crusts of numbness and shields of anger. Because when we thought we might be dying because love was intrusive and manipulative, that's what we had to do with our native wisdom. And I remember as a kid... We lived on the ocean and next to a river, and when it rained a lot, the, the river would flow all this mud out into the sea, and we'd love to go and play, you know, uh, as the river meets the sea, mixing sand and mud and making mud pies. And I remember make, bringing a mud pie home, you know, to show to my mom. And to me, all of my goodness was invested in it, all, all of my, you know, gold and all of my... Um, enthusiasm and childhood joy and energy and I just needed it affirmed and it wasn't that she was you know mean or anything it wasn't that she slapped me you know that can happen too and has to many of us it's just that she sort of ignored you know the mud pie I had made to show her and needed affirmation for and was you know pointing to it spilling on the kitchen floor a mother or a father can do that but for me I f- I folded up a bit. I covered up a bit, a bit of my gold, my goodness, my worthiness. I had to hide a bit. You know, so what was your mud pie? We all had many of them. Uh, and there were very important times in our lives when we just needed an, an affirming look. You know, maybe a word or a feeling or a touch. And didn't get it. So even the absences cause us to fold and create these karmic knots and blocks and river rocks and so forth. The healing is what we're doing. It's our practice. These transmissions of connecting and sustaining awareness with whatever is immediately happening, responding with a metta or karuna connection and sustaining it, not holding on to the story, the fabrication, and 
than feeling the feeling, wordlessly, pre-verbally. Most of our affirmations were needed before we conceptualized. So we were already hurt beings by the time we could formulate concepts and constructs and thoughts and, and words. We were already injured. You know, our personalities were already formed and hurt, betrayed, intruded upon. The joys and sorrows were already felt experiences, but we didn't know what to do because at the time they happened, there was no way we, we could hold them except as blocked energies in the body, our little bodies. Here in this sacred space, in this power of pre-verbal metta and karuna and mindfulness, is where we can feel again these ancient wounds, these ancestral wounds, the wounds of all our ancestry in back in time. And with the other lineage of our teaching lineage, that's the healing one, that's these transmissions of feeling again as it is, and then abiding in the result of that feeling, which is like when grief transforms into gratitude and compassion. Just abiding and feeling the healing, nothing to do. We want mine once more, as I ended last night with the poem. Just recognize that. It's never another survival strategy. I must want more, must need more. You know, our more is better. Sayada Upandita was really skilled at just enough, you know, like telling Michelle to digest. And he was always working with yogis, and I saw him work with hundreds of yogis during the years of my training with him. And all the time, you know, at one time, all of us think there should be something more happening, or we should want something more, or do something more, or get something more. And Sayada would say, no. It's just wanting. You know, don't hold on. It's not holding on. And feel what's there. It's all showing itself. Experience is doing the work. And all the stuff that's coming up and that we're feeling is precisely what we need to feel to heal. It's precisely the grief that grows into gratitude and the fear that transforms and transcends into courage, confidence of the Brahma Viharas. The Buddha's name is Siddhartha Gautama in Nepali. And um, the reason he became Buddha is because he was a rebel. And our, and our practice makes us rebels. What are we rebelling against? We're rebelling against anything that's blocking our healing and our unification of body and mind and our liberation. We're rebelling against that papancha mind that's fabricating all our experience into stories. You know, and, um, and gently rebelling against our old survival strategies and protective measures to be replaced by more powerful ones and skillful ones, the four Brahma-viharas. They're all the protection and survival strategy we need at the end of the day. And the transition, you know, is, is step by step. It's not aggressive. It's not violent. 
we don't want to punish ourselves. Just one step at a time and feel that. That's why we have this form. The form leads us to formlessness. Sometimes we don't like to walk, you know, back and forth. We think that's not going anywhere. Well, it is not going anywhere. (laughs) You know, so we want to walk out in nature, and it might fill our outer senses, our outer pleasures. But the Buddha and Upandita spoke profoundly of the inner Dhamma pleasures. So, So walking back and forth is really important. What is the resistance? What is the boredom? What is the feeling of being punished, you know, that might arise? walking back and forth. It might remind us of our teachers making us stand in the corner, you know. I was a pretty good bad boy in school. So I had to stand in corners a lot, right? Or write in the bulletin board, I, I will not hit Johnny anymore, and <laughs> stuff like that, you know. And so when you're told to just walk from A to B, you know, and hold your meditation uh, compassion subject or metta subject or be mindful of walking, of course we're going to rebel until we really understand what genuine rebellion is. So the, the Buddha joined, the Buddha-to-be as Gautama or Siddhartha, joined a group of rebels in his time, not so different than this time. Two and a half thousand years ago, it was, it was also an, an industrial time and centralization and politi- political you know, um, hierarchies and spiritual hierarchies. And there are a lot of you know, the equivalent of the 60s hippies going into the forest. So instead of growing their hair long, they were cutting it off. And he was one of them. And he went into the eastern region of the Ganges and joined those people. And, and his initial style of rebellion was a punishment, where he was cruel to his body, using excessive bodily denial and punishing kinds of practice and fasting and intense breathing exercises. And there was no balance, there was no nurture, there was no feminine, there was no compassion. Uh, where he found the true rebellion was not long before he became Buddha, when he was just this emaciated, you know, bones, wrapped, barely wrapped with silk-thin skin, and a woman walked up to him with rice gruel. She was going to offer it to a tree spirit and saw this you know, skinny little dude under a tree and felt like he needed nurture. And Gotama took it to the amazement of his friends and followers who then thought he was you know, going back to the life of sensuality. And they left him for a while until he became the Buddha. He took it and felt the nurturing effects of it, and, and thought to himself, this isn't the compassionate way, you know, there, there must be another way, you know, free of sense denial or seeking outer sense pleasures, free of craving. And that's where that great renunciation, you know, of rebelling against papancha, against all the fabricating thoughts, you should do this or not do that, or should deny and split off the body from the mind and so forth, he knew that it had to be balanced. And so what happened? He had a memory. Back to the age of about Pasha, when he was in the shade of a solitary, and his parents, the king and queen of this 
fiefdom they had in northern India, southern Nepal, were holding a fertility or agricultural fertility festival. And his nannies turned away from him at a high point, a peak experience in the festivities. And in that shade and coolness, he didn't feel lonely. You know, suddenly he felt affirmed by nature itself. And he felt this, he had this jhanic experience, this deep absorption in natural joy, an inner joy that didn't depend on external senses, you know, in the presence of his nannies or the festivities out there and excitement, visual excitement or auditory excitement. It went inward, naturally, in this little boy being. And he felt this complete opening and oneness with everything around him in the universe. It's 30 years later, he's remembering this. He said, this is the way. You know, it's only from joy and happiness that we can find liberation. And not from denial, not from splitting off. And then that's how he found this middle path. And that's how he realized that, you know, from this joy and happiness and contentment and seclusion from the external distractions and understanding them. We have a right to enjoy art and music and words, external beauty. It's only in believing that, you know, there lies our salvation or there lies our deeper peace and happiness that we just are, we stay in the story. We stay caught in the, in the fabrication. Instead, he turned inward, you know, and in that seclusion, he felt this seclusion, the word for seclusion is weweka, rest, relaxation. And then he found the samadhi, the stillness, that unity of mind, body, and nature. And then he found contentment, the sukha Michelle was talking about, that everything is okay as it is, even if there's discomfort or pain. It's okay. There's this ease of being and this sense of profound relaxation in the body and mind. And then the happiness of equanimity and peace, more of which I'll talk about in the next talk, about mudita, brahma-vihara, and upeka, the divine abidings of joy and divine abiding of the peace of equanimity. I'll end again with William Stafford, Stafford's poem to his best friend, James Dickey. Sometimes from sorrow, for no reason, you sing. For no reason, you accept the way of being lost, cutting loose from all else and electing a world where you go where you want to. Arbitrary, a sound comes. A reminder, a steady center is holding all else. If you listen, that sound will tell you where it is, and you can slide your way past trouble. Certain twisted monsters always bar the path. But that's when you get going best, glad to be lost, learning how real it is here on earth again and again.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.